0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. I'm Michael Zabo. We're back here on uh, on live on WSJU Radio. Uh, back for another edition um, on this March 29th. Um, we're going to talk about the sec- uh, the second weekend, uh, March Madness, and we're going to go into a little bit of my MLB standings predictions um, as March ma- uh, as uh, you know, opening day comes up this week for Major League Baseball. As I said, March Madness uh, will start off with as the tournament continues to progress. And uh, next weekend, uh, we got some Elite Eight games today and tomorrow. And we got some uh, Final Four, the Final Four weekend, um, and of course National Championship game next weekend. It's all coming down very fast. Uh, Just when you anticipate March Madness, um, you know, you're getting all ready for it this, pe- you know, three weeks ago, we're all anticipating for it, getting ready for it and everything finally have it for the first time in two day in two years. And all of a sudden, like, it, it hits you already, like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're two days away from already counting down the days till final four weekend. And, you know, that Monday night, it's it's over April 5th. That's it. It's done. Um, so it goes fast, um, and we're going to go through some of the action. But before we start off, make sure to follow my Twitter page at at underscore Mike, uh, M Sports Roundup, um, and my Instagram page at Michael underscore Zabo to get all updates um, for the show. Um, obviously, as always, we are live here on WSJU Radio from every Monday from 3 to 4 p.m. Um, all of our episodes are also on Spotify and Anchor. Be posted just after today's edition. Um, will be posted up to those podcast platforms. So go ahead and check out all of our episodes on Spotify and Anchor. So starting off today, once again with March Madness. We're recapping the Sweet Sixteen, talking a little bit about the Elite Eight. So as always, it's March Madness. We have some even more upsets. I meant to say it last weekend. If everybody's brackets weren't broken. You know, already they certainly are now. The way brackets were broken this year, I think, was unprecedented. Um, just after the first round, nobody had uh, any brackets left. And it really continued, uh, it's continued throughout the rest of the round since. Um, so, you know, we had some more upsets, um, you know, since then in the Sweet 16 and whatnot. And we'll take it, we'll start off first on the uh, bottom right uh, side of the uh, bracket. That's south uh, that um that um not the east side, but the um, the side with uh, Illinois, where we saw the upset with Illinois um, and Loyola Chicago. That side of the bracket um, over there. So we'll start there with Oregon State beating Loyola Chicago 65 to 58. That side of the March Madness bracket just has been I said it last week. Was just absolutely blown wide open. Illinois was taken out. Um, uh, um, Oklahoma State was taken out. The Midwest region. That's why I wanted to say the the Midwest region of the bracket will start off with uh, that side, of course, with the Illinois and Loyola Chicago um, upset that we saw just um, you know uh, back on March twenty first. So Oregon State, this time beating Loyola Chicago 65-58. to It seemed like, you know, Loyola Chicago were destined for another Final Four run even. I, even though this is a Sweet 16 game, um, you know, the way that they had been playing, you know, the moment uh, that uh, their momentum and everything was going to carry them to another magical run that we saw just a couple of years ago. That Sister Jean was going to inspire them to... Another in, another incredible underdog run. Um, but that was not to be. Or uh, Oregon State. I think that's really been lost in the headlines. Regarding Loyola Chicago. Is how good Oregon State has been lately. I think coming in. Uh, I think. You know. S- uh, in accounting that Loyola Chicago win. I think they've won 12 out of their last 13 games. Um, so I, I think. Oregon State was really been flying under the radar in terms of, you know, how good they can actually be, how much of a threat they were uh, to get the win uh, over the Ramblers, and which they did so. You know, um, getting caught up in all those headlines about Sister Jean and everything, um, Oregon State just did its thing, and uh, I think upset uh, a lot of people's uh, picks. Um, I know the brackets are pretty much gone at this point, but I don't know if anybody really plays the the second chance opportunities on ESPN where they'll just cut the bracket down to the Sweet 16 and you'll pick it out from there just like you do with the normal big bracket. I don't know if anybody's played that, but um, you know, I don't think even with that, that abbreviated version of the second chance bracket, anybody still had Oregon State. I think everybody thought Loyola-Chicago was at least going to win one more game, if not two, Um, but not to be. Oregon State, um, uh, uh, you know, a bid stealer out of the Pac-12. They've had such a great year. They were picked to finish last. They wind up winning their conference tournament and now getting all the way to the Elite Eight um, for the first time since 1982. Um, So hats off to them. Uh, they face a very tough uh, Houston team, um, which we'll get to them in a second. Um, but that's going to be a great matchup, as it always is in March Madness. So Oregon State beating Loyola Chicago 65-58. Uh, to 58. Um, One more quick note about, the, about that game um, before I move on. Um, that first, uh, that first, half, we read the final score, 65-58. That sort of seems like a normal score for college basketball and whatnot. Um, you know, it's not out of the norm. You always see those kind of games in March Madness and in the mid-60s, low-70s, all that kind of stuff. But this game started off really slowly in that, um, you know, they, I think it was, 10 minutes passed or something like that. And we wind up having the score was like nine, eight for Loyola Chicago uh, after 10 minutes. I mean, the, you could, I, don't get me wrong. I love defensive battles, but I think there was, it was just, it was just way too much at one point. I'm, I mean, this, the first half ended 24-16. to It really didn't look like we were go- going to have a, s- a final score that even got into the 50s at one point. The first half score was 24-16 to 16 with Loyola Chicago only shooting 17% from the field and Oregon State, not much better getting half of their 24 points in the first half from the free throw line. So obviously the game picked up in the second half. But for a while, it was looking like the the dud uh, matchup of March Madness, um, but it certainly picked up in Oregon State, at least in terms of the seeding um, and the betting lines, gets the um, upset win over Loyola Chicago. Um, over now to Baylor, um, up in the South region, um, the number one seed um, in the South, um, beating Villan- uh, Villanova 61-52. to 52, So It was another uh, Big East team taken out there. Villanova, got to give Jay Wright credit. This uh, was a team that, you know, they're down Colin Gillespie, an an All-American type guard, one of the best point guards in the country, um, and Villanova loses him for the tournament, gets a torn MCL right at the end of the season. Um, You know, Justin Moore, for a time, uh, prob uh, was you know his help was questionable but he was good to go for the NCAA tournament but they were down a starter and a big starter at that Villanova um, and yet Jay Wright has still been it a- was still able to guide them to the sweet 16. Yes it was against Winthrop and North Texas the two wins but it was still impressive you know to get to where they were in a matchup with Baylor and Actually for a time in in the matchup with the Baylor Bears, they were actually they they were winning it looked like uh, they had Baylor on the ropes, but then just didn't have enough in the last couple of minutes in the game to be able to pull out uh the big win um so I think it's really impressive what Jay Wright was able to do um it, it just if you don't already know that he's one of if not the best coaches coach in college basketball, that's certainly validated it um and you know that goes back for years i think he is really going to be in the conversation for one of the best college basketball coaches all time um but that's another conversation for another day but it was just really impressive how he was able to navigate the team uh through two wins in the ncaa tournament and get to the second weekend when everybody really was picking them to lose in the uh in the first round, even to Winthrop, and in a supr- in one of those classic five seed, uh, five seed versus twelve seed upsets, and yet they were able to dominate pretty much in that Winthrop game, except for you know in the early goings, it was still sort of tight, um, and then you know they just controlled the game the, uh, for most of the second half. Then North Texas just an absolutely, uh, absolute demo- demolition job, and then. You know, on Baylor, for pretty much, I think, what, 30, close to 35 minutes of the game, they were winning, and uh looked like they were going to pull it out for a time against Baylor. But then uh, Davion Mitchell's uh, defense kicked in, and uh, Baylor's defense really kicked in, and turnover after turnover were able to um, get on Villanova and, and close the gap and, you know, develop a lead themselves and close it out there. Um but again, I think that was really impressive by Villanova. Got a shout out, my guy Kevin Connolly, um, for calling this really. He's the one guy with some sanity in the room and saying, guys, listen, this is Jay Wright. Um, you know, let's. You know, Villanova's weakened, but this guy knows what he's doing, and you know we all knew that in the back of our minds. But man, we just wanted to indulge in the upset. Um, possibility with Gillespie, uh, Gillespie out, all the cards were there, and you know it was just right all the time. Villanova, as John, Ro- as the great John Rothstein likes to say, a Fortune 500 um, uh, a company. Villanova basketball. So, but nonetheless, um, one way or another, they are out, um, and Baylor is moving on to the Elite Eight. Now going over now. To the uh, other side of the South region with Arkansas. Arkansas who beat Cinderella number 15 seed Oral Roberts 72-70. to 70. This game was a nail-biter. It, it was, you know, uh, number 15 Oral Roberts going uh, to be the first 15 seed to ever get to the Elite Eight. That was the whole storyline and whatnot. Um, you know, and they really made it a game for Arkansas a lot of the time. And they were even up by... Uh, Twelve at one point. Arkansas to come back from a double-digit uh, deficit, um, and you know came right down to the wire. Oral Roberts there attempt at a buzzer-beater um, from Matts Amis. Um, he just missed what would have been the game-winning three on a, bu- a buzzer-beater. So um, you know a great season from Oral Roberts. Um, you know one of those cla- they were the classic Cinderellas in this March Madness. A great. Um, You know, a great season for them. But Arkansas moving along to really have our marquee matchup in the Elite Eight, a uh, Baylor-Arkansas. I think uh, a lot of people um, had Arkansas on this spot or maybe even have them uh, getting into the Final Four. Some people had Texas Tech or whatnot, but Arkansas beat them. But this has been uh, a a great uh, Razorback team. And now it's going. I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, matchup. Um, with Baylor, um, so looking forward to that um, a little later on um, this week uh, actually that is uh, that 's tonight um, we 'll go through the elite eight matchups uh, a little in a couple of minutes and go through my picks uh, for those, uh, but moving now on uh, on to uh, back down to the midwest region, the other side of the Midwest region, with Houston, Houston doing an absolute demolition job. On Jim Bayheim's uh, Syracuse, beating them 62-46, to 46. Syracuse right from the outset, um, you know, really didn't look like they were going to win this game. Houston uh, just did a phenomenal job defensively at limiting uh, Buddy Bayheim especially um, in that first half. Buddy only having 12 points uh, and 6 rebounds in 36 minutes of action, um, but it you know, I think it was just an absolute defensive me- master class by Kelvin Sampson's um, squad. You know, for Syracuse, they, they just, at one point, especially in the first half, really got into just a mode of just chucking up threes randomly. They just weren't able to get much inside and, you know, just taking a lot of ill-advised shots. Um, you know, and they just kept on going to the three ball, and that wasn't working. Um, and then uh, defensively, there was a time where Syracuse looked like they were going to really make it a game. They went on a 10-0 run. Um, they were able to lock it down more defensively, but then Houston was able to turn it up to another gear and just never looked back from there. And like I said, they just had a great defensive job on Syracuse. And Syracuse, w- their offense was just just non-existent. They're a lot, taking a lot of ill-advised shots, not able to get what they really wanted, um, and yet, you know, um, you know, not really doing a great job um, on Houston. Um, so Houston gets the win there, moving on to the Elite Eight um, in a in a demolition job once again of the Orange. Um, now over to the Sunday games, uh, Gonzaga beating Creighton, eighty-three to sixty-five. Gonzaga. Um, tr- as we all know, trying to um, achieve their quest of repeating uh, the 1976 uh, Bobby Knight, Indiana Hoosiers of going 32 and 0. And they got one one step closer uh, to their goal after they beat the Creighton Blue Jays. Um, Creighton really looked um you know, just completely overmatched the entire time. Uh, yes, at times they made it into a game. Credit to credit to them. They were able to push Gonzaga a little bit more than some other teams we've seen. Although they eventually lost by 22. Um, you know, it. Uh, I'm sorry, they lost by 18. But, um, you know, for a time in the game, it did look like it was going to be close for a while. I believe Creighton got it down as close to 2. Um, before Gonzaga would go on a run um, and basically put it out of reach for the Blue Jays. But um, with that loss uh, to Gonzaga by Creighton, it now means the Big East have no teams uh, remaining uh, left in the field. But, you know, good to see at least Villanova and Creighton getting uh, to the second weekend. That was at least uh, good news for the conference. Um, But Creighton, um, you know, Marcus Egorowski, got to give credit to him, 19 points, three rebounds in 34 minutes to assist as well uh, for the junior point guard. Zegarowski really did everything he possibly could to keep this team in the game um, and try and take it to Gonzaga. But, I mean, <laughs> Gonzaga are just a team that, I mean, they, they don't have any holes. They really are a complete team. The w- The only way you defend them is, you know, you try and and get tight on one or two guys, but they have another one or two guys beyond that who can be able to, um, you know, kill you just as much. I mean, just look at this. I mean, they had Corey Kispert, uh, 12 points and 7 rebounds. um, And Jalen Suggs, 9 points, 5 rebounds. Probably Gonzaga's two best players, Suggs and Kispert, only uh, uh, combining for 21 points. And... Yet, Creighton still lose by eighteen. You know, and that's what happens when you when your other players and your quote unquote role players are are uh, Andrew Nemhart and and Joel Ayai, and uh, then you have Drew Timmy as well. I mean, this is just a team that is. It's just complete. I'm not. I'm not saying that uh, they'll win the champion. I picked that they've win the uh, that they'll win the national championship. Now, you know there are other teams in the field that are looking good as well. You know in the in the Final Four, God, uh, God forbid, we're all thinking they get past uh, USC. Michigan could be a tough out for them, tougher than we all thought. We thought the Isaiah Livers injury was really going to knock um, Michigan out earlier in this tournament at some point, and yet they are still in the Elite Eight with as the lone Big Ten team still standing. They could be an obstacle. They've been playing really well despite uh, the injury to livers, um, and also Baylor if they do get there. Um, but I think just when you look at this Gonzaga team, man, they are absolutely complete. It is so hard to defend them because, like I just read out with those stats, even if you're able to limit one or two guys, they got another... You know the rest of their guys in their lineup can be able to contribute just as well as Suggs and Kispert and whatnot. All of these guys, these, all of these five guys, can be able to put up twenty or thirty points uh, on their own on any given night. Thirty's pushing it a little bit, but all of these guys can really be able to. Um, you know, fill the stat sheet. Any, any of their top five in Suds, Ayai, Nemhart, Tim, uh, Timmy, Kispert, and we've seen, we've said the storyline all season, but as we get closer potentially to 32-0, it just keeps on getting more and more impressive how complete of a team uh, Gonzaga are, and we'll see if their quest uh, for 32-0 is able to continue and is ultimately achieved. Uh, but going on from there, Michigan, as I just mentioned about them, beating Florida State 76-58, to 58, uh, getting to uh, the Elite Eight once again. And just like I said, I, I did not uh, really count. Uh, I counted Michigan out in this tournament. Um, if, you know, I said to myself when I was making my bracket a couple weeks ago that, you know, if Isaiah Livers was in the team, they were my lock to at least make the final four. They might still do it without livers. I mean, imagine, imagine if they, if they had livers. I don't know if they would still beat Gonzaga. Uh, I don't know if they would beat Gonzaga if they get there. But uh, I mean, you know, just trying to go through those one uh, what-if scenarios. If they are able to beat uh, UCLA, Michigan, and they get into a potential uh, final four matchup with Gonzaga, you know, it does present a lot of what-if scenarios. If, you know, Isaiah Liver you know, depending on what would happen, um, you know, let's say Gonzaga wins and goes to the national championship game in that scenario, you know, the what-ifs, if Isaiah Livers would have been here, what would have happened kind of storylines will come up. But I think it's just really impressive, um, you know, still without Livers, Michigan are in this position. Just goes to show how impressive of a team – uh, they are this year playing, uh, you know, this good of a bat, uh, this deep into March, despite having uh, not having arguably its best player. Um, so Michigan uh, will face off against UCLA in the Elite Eight. Um, speaking of UCLA, uh, UCLA, they got the huge upset victory over Alabama last night, 88 to 78 in overtime. Of course, we had that big. Um, shot by Alex Reese, that uh, game tying three pointer to send it into overtime. But in the overtime extra period, um, UCLA just absolutely dominated. Uh, you know, Alabama just sort of went away. They they just you know, it was like a whimper. That's all that they had in overtime. It, it was really disappointing. You would have thought. That especially, let's say, if you picked Alabama or if you're a Crimson Tide fan, you would have expected that that huge uh, three-point shot out of nowhere to uh, tie the game um, and send it to overtime um, would invigorate the team. Because down the stretch in, in that um, uh, down the stretch in regulation. Alabama were not looking good. They were turning it over. Obviously UCLA jumped into the lead and had a three point lead with less than thirty seconds uh, to go. Um, you know, things weren't looking good. And then all of a sudden they you know, just with the hope and a prayer, Javon Quinnerly's able to find a pass to Alex Reese before anybody from UCLA could find him, and from deep, I mean this was not a normal three. It was a deep three. And he and you know, Alex Reese is able to send it to overtime. You would think that shot would invigorate the Crimson Tide. You know, thinking, oh man, you know, we weren't great down that regular, uh, down that, um, uh, down the, the stretch of, uh, you know, regular time. You know, but now we, we somehow are able to tie that game. The, the game is there for us to be able to snatch here in overtime, be able to get to an elite eight for the first time since 2004, and yet they they were just not there in uh, in overtime. They, it was just like they they were sleeping. They 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 didn't re- realize they were they were back playing. Um, you would have thought that coming in uh, coming out of um, you know regulation and overtime that they would. You know uh, have be playing with some more energy um, than that that they wouldn't be as flat as they were. so I think that was absolutely shocking um, you know because usually in that situation you see with a lot of teams them getting a big uh, a, um, buzzer beater to tie or something like that to get into overtime, they have plenty of momentum in the extra period and the uh, and it's really the other team. Uh, uh, that are on the ropes, but that was not the case with UCLA. So you got to give UCLA credit there. They could have folded, you know, they could have, you know, hung their heads giving up that game uh, tying three that instead of, you know, escaping with a three-point win uh, to head to the Elite Eight, they go into overtime and yet still pull out a 10-point win. Um, You know, it's just impressive how they are able to dig deep and get through that period and still able to get the win because, once again, that's typically not the normal uh, storyline of a game that uh, uh, goes into overtime or a team that is able to force overtime. They were able to go against the norm, and they just um, dug deep and were able to get some uh, critical baskets um, and and, uh, get the big win and put away Alabama. Um, Jaime, Jaime Jaquez was the biggest one. He had a couple of threes. Um, in overtime, including that uh, really tough one. He was practically in double coverage, um, falling away, and that three was just really impressive, and that was pretty much the dagger for Alabama. Um, but once again, just it, it, it just uh, the resiliency of UCLA to be able to um, come out of that game with a win and head to the Elite Eight, um, despite uh, giving up the game-tying uh, three, Um, is just really impressive for Mick Cronin's squad and and, and just a testament to how good um, of a coach he is and, and, you know, what he's done at UCLA, putting them back on the map. Um, But, you know, uh, the narrative would have been a lot different if they did not win that overtime game because, you know, my Twitter timeline started to blow up the second overtime hit, as, as always, with the, you know, cardinal rule of... Always foul when you're up by three with less than 30 seconds left. Um, and, you know, it's absolutely true. that. And it, it was it was funny that the exact time when, um, you know, Alabama was, was going to inbound it, you're coming back from the TV timeout or whatnot, and uh, the television commentators are saying, well, Mick Cronin's a big fan of fouling when up by three in this scenario— uh, with uh, at that point, it was like four seconds left. Um, y- y- you know, uh, uh, they were saying, well, Mick Cronin's a big fan of fouling one up three in the in, in this uh, stage of the game. And yet what happens? His team doesn't foul and up by three. Now, I heard the other argument that, oh, there wasn't a chance for them to be able to foul um, because Quinnerly passed it off to Reese before they could. I don't agree with that sentiment. Because you could have had someone beyond half court, and you know, not preventing Quinterly from catching it, just let him catch it, and before he could turn and get downhill and see what it, what's beyond uh, the court, uh, beyond half court, um, you know, they could have fouled him. I, I get the apprehension once they had that they had when he once he turned, because you know, God forbid, what if he heaves it? from half court, and then you don't want to foul a three-point shooter and give him three free throws. I get that, but I think someone should have been on him, you know, not to prevent him to ca- from catching the ball near uh, half court, but, you know, just to shadow him, and as soon as he would catch the ball, you know, boom, you foul him right there before he could turn, look, and do anything with four seconds left, rather than waiting for him to get to half court or trying to meet him at half court once he's turned around and, and foul him right there. So I think they could have handled that differently. But at this point, it's all a moot point because they got the win. Um, anyway, so congrats to UCLA getting to uh, the Elite Eight and just an impressive job uh, done by Mick Cronin's crew. It is going to be a very interesting game, UCLA. Up against Michigan, UCLA trying to become the second ever team to go from first four to final four. As we all know, UCLA uh, was a number 11 seed that was in that uh, 11 seed playing game with Michigan State that went to overtime. So once again, trying to become the second team uh, to go from first four to final four. VCU did it with uh, did it in 2011 with. Um, uh, might as well drop the news, but new Mar- Marquette head coach, Shaka Smart. Um, so, once again, um, UCLA trying to join that group. Then we have the last of the Sweet 16 uh, matchups. We had USC beating Oregon in the nightcap, 82-68. to 68. Um, USC going on to a matchup uh, to face the Goliath in, in the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Um, USC really... It was a back and forth to start off this game, but generally UCLA, uh, uh, USC, um, you know, really dominated um, this matchup, um, especially in the second half. Oregon was really playing from behind uh, for most of the time after the midway portion of the first half and on. Um, You know, uh, USC's uh, defense was just really good. The length of Evan Mobley really gave them trouble. Mobley inside was really good had had a good game um you also had um you know mobley last night just looking up his um numbers uh 10 points his brother Isaiah uh, 13 um, but uh most importantly mobley getting eight uh rebounds six assists um, as well um so able to play make also um so USC just a, a really um, you know, really clinical game, was able to, um, be efficient, um, shot 58% from the three-point, uh, from beyond the three-point line, just really efficient, uh, from, uh, Three-point range. They shot 57 from uh, 57% from the field overall. So a really efficient offensive performance from them. Uh, Dana Altman would be especially uh, uh, upset with that performance. It's not really characteristic of his team. That defense was not really up to par. Um, you know, just not a really good defensive job um, on the Trojans. Um, Oregon themselves on, on their side. Of things, only shooting 37% from the field, 23% uh, from three point range. Um, so, with them out, that means our former uh, St. John's uh, basketball player LJ Figueroa is now out of the uh, of the NCAA tournament. After Figueroa had 21 points and seven rebounds against number two seed um, Iowa um, in the previous uh, round, um, this time around Figueroa only had. Four points um, in the game um, usually a, a really uh, balanced scoring team Oregon uh, was really limited to just uh, Eugene Omarui and uh, Chris Duarte were really the bulk of the offense with 28 and 21 points respectively um, everyone else um, you know figure only four I mentioned Will Richardson only five Eric Williams Jr. only two um, Fra- Frank Kepnang with eight So this was a team against Iowa that were able to get um, pretty much all of their starters. I believe four out of four out of their five starters into double figures. Not the case uh, this time, and that's what ultimately leads uh, them to getting the blowout, uh, getting blown out uh, by USC. So USC now on to the um, Elite Eight, and once again, as I said, facing Gonzaga, and we're going to talk about that matchup in a second. Quickly, we'll go through. Uh, the Elite Eight. As the Elite Eight starts tonight, Elite Eight will have uh two games each at seven fifteen and nine uh fifty seven uh tonight and tomorrow night. So uh tonight we'll have the right side of the bracket with Oregon State taking on Houston at seven fifteen PM and Baylor and then in the night right afterward in the nightcap, Baylor will take on Arkansas at nine fifty seven both games will be on CBS, and then tomorrow we have uh, tomorrow night. Uh, Gonzaga will take on uh, USC and UCLA versus Michigan. Uh, same time, seven fifteen and nine fifty-seven. Both will be on TBS. Uh, that's on Tuesday. So to go through all the elite a- elite eight matchups really quickly here: Oregon State uh, versus Houston. We, we mentioned before and uh, when talking about. Um, Uh, The Beavers going up uh, uh, In their win against Loyola Chicago um, We mentioned how I think basically they've won 12 out of their last 13 uh, Games, you know, counting This NCAA tournament and Conference tournament and the the Last legs of the regular season Um, So they've been A hot team But I think going up against this Houston Team is just going to be uh, Too much for them Um, You know, I, I think Houston, that job, that, that defensive job that they did on Syracuse, I th- I think just shows that um, they'll be able to get to a Final Four here. Um, Houston, oddly enough, if they do um, win this game against Oregon State and go to the Final Four, I think they'll they'll be the first team um, or the first two seed at least. Um, I think it's some sort of record like that um to go through to face a, a double digit seed in every round in every round of this tournament, and uh, they have uh, done so with Cleveland State, Rutgers, um, Syracuse and now Oregon State. Um, so I think Houston's defense is just going to be too much uh, for the beavers and I see the the Coug- I see the, the Cougars going on in this one. So that's at 7:15 tonight, and then I think a a really tantalizing matchup here with the Baylor Bears uh, versus the Arkansas Razorbacks. um, Scott Drew versus Eric Musselman, in terms of the coaches. 9:57 p.m. tonight, once again on CBS. Um, I I think Baylor, you know, pulling out a gutsy win uh, against Villanova. They were able to, uh, you know, despite not playing uh, well. In that game, it's it, it for most of uh, that game up until the last couple of minutes. Especially their shooting, Baylor is normally, uh, you know, just go uh, go by the stats, the best three-point shooting team in the country. We're far from it against Villanova, and actually did not shoot all that well against the Wildcats from three-point range, and yet we're still able to come out um, with the win. Um, uh, just to give you the raw stats, Baylor only shot three for 19 uh, from three-point range. That is good for 15% uh, from beyond the arc. Absolutely horrible uh, shooting from uh, the standard of the Baylor Bears, who are the the number one three-point shooting team this season in college basketball. Uh, and yet, they were still able to pull out the win. And that was the big indicator, when, as you were watching the game, to thinking, as to why um, ba- uh, Baylor were going to get upset there by Villanova, because the two losses that Baylor have suffered this year were uh, featured them not shooting well from the uh, from beyond the arc, but yet they were still able to dig deep. Baylor, their defense kicked in in the last, I would say, seven minutes or so, and were able to get turnover after turnover on uh, Villanova. Uh, uh, Davion Mitchell just hounded um, the Wildcats and were able to get plenty of turnovers, turn that into plenty of uh, points in transition and we're able to close uh, the gap on Villanova and eventually close them out as I said before. Um, I think that I think Baylor is looking, I think you see game by game is looking close to what they were before. Um, They hit the COVID pause. That was the big thing with Baylor headed into the tournament is they really hadn't looked the same. Um, You know, when you go before and after their COVID pause, they hadn't really looked the same Baylor Bears as they were before. Uh, They had to go on a COVID pause. Um, But I think progressively as we've gone through the tournament, they've gotten better. They've gotten close close to being back to where they were before that pause. And I think that them being back to that position uh, means that they will defeat uh, Arkansas tonight. I have Baylor moving on to the final four and getting closer, I think, to everybody's dream title matchup of Gonzaga versus Baylor for the title. Um, Will it happen? We'll see. But for now, I think we'll at least get one game uh, closer to it um, with Baylor beating um, a spirited Arkansas team that, you know, they're having a great year with Eric Musselman. They've they've had to overcome double-digit deficits multiple times in this tournament to pull out gutsy wins. Um, but I don't think they will do so this time. The only way I see Arkansas winning is if they are able to do what Villanova did and be able to hold a lead. To be, not hold a lead because obviously Villanova couldn't toward the end of the game, but... I think our, if Arkansas can be able to start this game out fast and get out to a lead over Baylor, they might have a shot. I don't think if they get into a hole, if they get go into halftime, down 10, down 12, something to that effect, uh, it will be just be too much for them to overcome. They, Like I've said, um, they've got already gone through a couple of games where they've had to overcome double-digit deficits. I don't think that would be the case um, this time around, and Baylor, I think it will just be too much this time around. Um, so I think Baylor will be victorious in this matchup and head uh, to the Final Four. And then Tuesday night, and then moving on to Tuesday night's game and the other two matchups um, in the Elite Eight, as I mentioned before, um, Gonzaga USC uh, would be at 7:15 p.m. and UCLA versus Michigan would be at 9:57 p.m. Uh, the Tuesday, both the Tuesday night games will be on TBS rather than CBS as the games uh, are on tonight. So once again, Monday night, uh, tonight's game, CBS. Um, tomorrow uh, will be TBS. Um, so Gonzaga versus USC mentioned. Uh, talked a little bit about this um, before. Um, I think Gonzaga are going to keep on uh, mowing down and get one more game closer uh, to 32-0. I just think they—they they just have way too much firepower. Um, you know, as we as we mentioned before, Craden were able to limit one or two guys. They were able to limit Suds and Kispert somewhat, but then still were got torched by a Yai and uh, Timmy, um, and even Nemhart as well. Um, so you limit one or two, there's still another three guys who could um, you know get you just as bad. Um, I think the 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 one thing that U- USC has going for them is their length. I think the length of um, Isaiah uh, um, Isaiah Mo- the Mobley brothers Isaiah and Evan could give Gonzaga some trouble because um, they're not known for their length. Um, Gonzaga that could give USC some trouble. Um, that would be the only uh, thing I could say that USC is going for them other than that i really see um gonzaga once again um being able to cruise in this matchup not cruise but you know i guess cruise to their extent what you know what they normally do and dominate um but i think they'll just they're just such an efficient offense they take such uh good shots um they they all know what they're doing they're such a complete team i think they'll be uh victorious in the, this matchup and keep on moving on um and you got UCLA and Michigan, and uh, this is, you know, it's a. This will be an interesting matchup. Close to predict, I'm sure a lot of people might have uh, the upset in UCLA. Um, you know, because I think people said last round that they were going to lose to Alabama. They said it the round before that, and UCLA st- still was able to defy the odds and make it through. But I think this is where the Great story of, you know, this year's UCLA and Mick Cronin's team will end. I think they will stop, you know, one game short of being the the second ever team to go from first four to final four. And I think uh, Michigan will move on to the final four. Michigan, I think, are just playing too well right now. Um, You know, despite not having Isaiah Livers, they are still playing at the level that most people expected them to. Um, so I, I I expect them to keep on um, going and give us an enticing uh, Gonzaga versus Michigan uh, Final Four matchup. I think that'll be supremely, uh, supremely exciting on all sides of things. So that's my uh, Sweet 16 recap and Elite Eight predictions uh, for March Madness. Um, we'll see what happens uh, tonight and tomorrow night on all the games and then Of course, we'll wrap it up and we'll recap what happens um, later on. Uh, So moving on now over to uh, the MLB. Um, We'll get into our standings predictions as, believe it or not, I know we're all caught up with, you know, we're all entranced by March Madness, but opening day is coming up um, on baseball. Once again, it will be back once opening day uh, starts this Thursday. Um, or Wednesday for most teams or whatnot. Um, we will have baseball for the next seven months. You know, obviously, um, great uh, for baseball. Finally, have it uh, back. And of course, you know that. Of course, means spring and warmer weather coming, which I love. Um, so, going through our standings predictions, I think we'll start off with the National League, and um, then we'll come to the American League later on to wrap things up. We'll start off with the NL East. Um, And predicting this is sort of tough. Um, You know, I I think this is one of the tougher divisions to pick. I've been going back and forth between this, whether to pick the Mets or the Braves to win this division um, or whatnot. But ultimately, I picked the Braves here. I think uh, um, they'll uh, they'll, uh, win the division with 95 wins. Um, I think just their pitching is too good. They added uh, Charlie Morton. A great veteran who, at the very least, is going to be a solid, uh, very reliable pitcher Um, for them. You know what you're getting with him. Um, You know, and obviously, to bring uh, he brings his postseason experience as well to a team that's already had um, a bunch of it. Um, uh, I think you know Atlanta's been knocking on the door for the past couple of years. They've had to deal with the the uh the big bad Los Angeles Dodgers um and they they uh fell to them once again in the NLCS um last season but um you know I think that they're once again going to uh, go on a on a playoff run I think they'll win this NL East division once again um you know I think their pitching is just we all know about their their lineup I think their their pitching is just um going to be able to edge them out in this division the Mets I have in second place with 90 wins. Um, you know, I think the Mets, I think the argument can be made for them to win the division. The question marks I have on them is really starting in the beginning of this season. Um, Carlos Carrasco is out for at least the first month. That's a big starting pitcher down for them. Um, you know, what can the lights of Peterson and Lucchese be? Um, Be able to give them Strowman to a certain extent as well, but especially in that that back end of the starting rotation, you know, that's a little more um, inexperienced and, you know, less proven than someone like Carrasco. Um, Can they be able to, you know, hold the fort down and and, um, start off somewhat well until they hit the time when Carrasco um, is healthy enough to come back? And back into this lineup. And, you know, to go out even further than just Carrasco coming back to when Syndergaard is able to come back um, around June, um, you know, a couple of weeks before the All Star break. You know, how will the Mets uh, fare um, in the first half, really? Um, You know, I think that's usually been the big thing for the Mets. In recent years, they've always been a, a really good second half team, they usually pick it up in in the uh second half uh, after the all-star break the problem with that is that they've capitulated uh so much in in uh, uh, mid to late may and early june that they've uh, really dug themselves into a deep hole that even with the good second half run uh they're not able to get out of um but i, I think that will i think that would be interesting to um watch in the beginning of this season can they be able to um be good enough to be able to ride uh, ride things out until Carrasco is able to come back into the rotation and provide stu- some more stability for them and then project it out further uh, with Syndergaard. And then, of course, they can be able to overcome all of their you know, recent bullpen struggles that they've had over the last couple of years. Can they be able to overcome that? I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, but for now, uh, I'm going with the Braves um, winning this division um, by a couple of games. Um, you know, but the argument is there um, for the Mets. But I just think that you know, pound for pound, I think the Braves' uh, rotation is just slightly better. The argument can be made they match up once um, the Mets match up very well once Syndergaard comes back. The question is, what will the state of the Mets be by the time they get to that point um, when Syndergaard? Um, Comes back, um, you know, where will they be in the standings or whatnot? Will they be, um, you know, able um, to put themselves in a position to still win the division? If they're in a good position, once Syndergaard comes back, he's looking good, he's looking healthy, he's looking effective, and uh, I think they can really win this division, the Mets. I think they have. You know, I think it's typical. Of the Mets in the last couple of years, they can have a real high ceiling, or or they can have a real low floor, depending on on the performances, especially um, of their pitching. I think their lineup is going to be really well, really good. I think I don't think their offense is going to be a concern. I just think um, it's really going to be about their pitching. How will they be able to deal with the first couple weeks and, and first month of the season? Um, without Carrasco and and the stability that he brings um and then you know how the starting rotation fare and then you know obviously projected out to Syndergaard. but yeah I have the top 2 Braves and Mets and then Nas- and then I have the Nationals uh the Phillies and then uh the Marlins um the NL moving over to the NL Central I have the uh Cardinals uh the Brewers um uh, the Reds and then the um, and then the uh, Cubs um, as uh, below the Reds um, there and then the uh, pirates um, in last place um, so I think um, the Cardinals I think will win I think they're pitching with Jack Flaherty um, will be able to go far in this uh, division I say go far but I think the NL Central usually will have be a little bit low in win totals. I have the Cardinals winning the division at 85 uh, wins. Usually, this is a sort of strange division um, that they they beat up on each other a lot. It's not a, a great division in terms of you're not going to see the high win totals um, and all um, that we see that I just mentioned like within the NL East or whatnot. Um, I think um, I think the Cardinals will win the division. And then I got the Brewers in second place there. They'll still be around. I I could see the Reds getting in there. Um, I think losing Trevor Bauer, say what you want about uh, Trevor Bauer, whether the Cy Young season was a fluke because it was a shortened season or whatnot, say what you want. Um, He is a a good, uh, he is a somewhat uh, decent pitcher. Um, I think losing him uh, will impact their rotation, negatively and, you know, just take off a couple of wins uh, for them and move them out of that second spot. Um, The Cubs, I think, uh, are starting to go into a rebuild mode. Um, uh, You know, they have, um, they traded away um, you Darvish, um, you know, question marks are around Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, what's going on with them any extensions coming in for them or whatnot. We've seen trade rumors for the last couple months, close to a year, um, for uh, Chris Bryant. Um, So question on whether, uh, you know, what's going on with the Cubs right now. Their pitching rotation is just an absolute question mark beyond Kyle Hendricks. I think the Cubs are just all over the place right now. And who knows, depending on their performance, could be uh, in selling mode by the time we... Uh, head to the all-star break and the deadline. And the Pirates, don't get me started on the Pirates. They're just, they're all over the place. They're, they're tanking. Um, they're just going to be really, really bad this season. The NL West, then, a really, really intriguing division. The Dodgers, uh, 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 I have winning the division. Of course, everybody's talking about the Padres and the crazy moves they made, trading for you Darvish um, and Blake Snell. Um, I think it's going to be a really tight race between them. Um, but I do have the Dodgers winning out in 162 game eh, different, it, could, a 162-game season. we could be a different argument in a short playoff series, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. I have the Dodgers winning, then the Pirates, the Giants, the Diamondbacks, and then the Rockies. That rounds out the National League. And then the over to the American League, um, the AL East, I have the Yankees winning out. The division at 90 uh, 90 wins. So, yes, I do have the Mets and Yankees at the same amount of wins. That is not a typo. The wins, the win numbers, I put those there, those are estimations. Um, I'm really looking at the places at where they um, finish, but the win numbers are really just rough um, estimations. Um, I'm really looking at where the places uh, of each team uh, finish. I think the Yankees will uh, uh, win the division. I think the Blue Jays will finish uh, second uh, to the Rays. Um, you know, I know the Ray the Rays really lost um, some pitching this uh, this off season with um, Blake Snell being traded to the Padres, um, Charlie Morton um, being gone as well. So I think their pitching is going to take a hit. I don't think they'll be bad. Of course, they still got Tyler Glass now. Um, their, their, their analytics team, of course, is great there. Um, and you know whatever they do with their series of openers or whatnot, beyond uh, Glass now, um, and whatever else they do in the starting rotation, they are going to be a really solid team. But I think the Blue Jays are coming up. They made some moves on the starting uh, 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 the, the starting pitching market, I guess you could say. They got Steven Maths at the very at the very worst. He is um, a good back end of the a uh, uh, rotation guy. Um so I think the Blue Jays um with their young lineup that is um you know really growing is going to be able to get up um into second place. Many may say may push the Yankees in the division. Um but we'll see. I have them in second place right now Toronto and who knows. Many questions could be on their pitching, but they got a great farm system. They could be big players at the deadline um depending on where they are. The AL Central, moving over to that, I have the White Sox, the Twins, the Indians, uh, the Kansas City Royals, and then the Detroit Tigers at the bottom. The Tigers are just in a in a rebuild. You know, there's still I I still think there's no end in in sight right now. New manager um, with A.J. Hinch, um, you know, but I think they they have a a couple years um, to really um, rebuild and really get anywhere near. Uh, back to contention. The White Sots, with their pitching, I think they'll win out the division and will be a real threat in the American League um, to get to the World Series, um, just like the Yankees and the the Astros and the usual suspects. But I think the American League is very uh, wide open this year, and the White Sots will be in that conversation. Then I have the Twins there. Um, Question marks around their pitching, but they're getting better with that. Um, But I think their lineup could really club them um, all by itself to um, second place. The Indians I could very easily see in the second spot. They're always uh, strong pitching-wise, but their offense is not really great. Um, obviously, he's going to take a step back um, with, Fran- with the Francisco and trade um, now that he's left uh, Cleveland. Um, so for right now, I'm having them in that third place there. And then the AL West, I got Houston winning the division. Oakland, uh, the Los Angeles Angels. Um, in third place there, Um, then Seattle, and then uh, Texas uh, to round out the division there. Um, So that rounds out my MLB standings predictions. Opening day starting this week, we have baseball season finally back. I'll get into my playoff predictions um, in the next uh, coming weeks. Um, But for now, those are my MLB standings predictions. Um, And yeah, so with that, um, rounding up another edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. I'm Michael Zabo. Hope you have a good day, everybody.